Story Collective. Untold stories by unheard voices. Keystrokes Per Minute, a limited series podcast about the women of the New Zealand public service typing pools from 1945 till the present day. Heidi my welcome to episode 5, Life in the Typing Pool, part 3. We start this episode with the stories of where interviewees' careers progress to, whether they stayed in the typing pool, moving into senior or supervisory roles, whether they moved into other areas of government work, or left the public service altogether. For those who stayed, the impact of the 1988 State Services Act, intersecting with the evolution of new technologies, saw the beginning of the end of the public service typing pools. At the time, it was reported in the Dominion Sunday Times that a blizzard of legislation, restructurings and efficiency drives continued to affect the public sector. In 1989 came reports that a total of 40,000 state jobs had gone in three years. In the second half of this episode, we put the spotlight on the only typing pool that still exists today, that of the medical typists and transcriptionists in district health boards across the country. Before we kick off episode 5, let me introduce listeners to one of the Keystrokes Oral History Project researchers, without whom this podcast would not exist. Hello, kia ora. My name is Eth Lloyd and I am one of the Keystrokes researchers. I became involved in this project for a series of reasons, but particularly as the voices of this part of the workforce deserve to be heard and must be retained. Listening to and recording the stories of these women shows the value of the work, the deep pride and satisfaction they got from the work and from doing it to a very high standard. I hope that those who listen to these stories also feel pride in the work they did. In this opening clip, Mary Dooley explains her progression through the different government departments and senior positions within the typing pools, eventually working her way up to the manager of typing services with the Department of Internal Affairs, in command of a large group of typists spread out across satellite pools. Mary then tells us about how another round of restructuring was the catalyst for her retirement in 1992 after 43 years' service. So you decided when you saw a new... A, a job Next grading. Right. I applied for it. How did you see that job? In the official circular. In the circular. You see, and it just happened to be very, very seldom would a grade a position come up at, in that next grade because... Um, they were fairly tight, these grades, you know. The, the pool, it, what it, how the rules were that if it was um, a staff of 10 or under, you're on grade, the lowest grade of a supervisor. If you had between 10 and 20 or 11 and 20, then you're in the next grade. And if you had over 20, you're in the next grade. You see? So that's, that's the way it worked. Now... What happened was social welfare was advertising for a short, uh, uh, supervising typist in charge for their district office. Now, I was in the uh, Department of Health district office, so I applied. I didn't think there'd be a problem. I was wrong. I got the job, but I didn't realise that there was a lady who had been sitting there expecting to get the job. And she appealed against me. They told me, don't worry, it will all be taken care of. 
and it was, and I and she she had to take my job in the other department, in the health department. health department. I saw a job advertised at the next grade, and it was at Labor Department head office in the Hope Gibbons building on the corner of Taranaki Street and Inglewood Place. And um, I didn't apply because I thought, oh, there'll be somebody there sitting in the wings waiting for this job, and I'm not going to go and do, go through that again. So I didn't apply, but about a month later, I saw the job advertised again. So I thought, oh. I better put my application in. And so I did. And I got called for an interview. And the next thing is I had got the job. Internal Affairs was another very diverse department. Very, very diverse. And very, very interesting. And it had a, a wide range of subjects that it covered. Right. So you started... Internal Affairs in May of 1975 and I worked there until I retired and I retired in um, the middle of the year of 1992 sorry they decided to restructure and um, I'd been working for 42 and a half years at this time and I had six months retiring leave due to me, so I decided not to apply for my job, which was re-advertised as the manager of typing services plus staff training officer together. They decided to include the role of staff training officer for the department. And I thought, yeah, I don't want to do it. So I just... I, I, I decided to take my retiring leave and finished up the, at that stage. Didn't apply for the job and I was turning 60 in the following January. So that was my six months retiring leave and I was paid up till the end of 1992. 43 years altogether. At the end of episode four, we heard from New Zealand writer and poet Maggie Rainey-Smith. But Maggie is not the only writer to be produced from the typing pools. In this clip, Lorraine tells us about her writing career, which included publishing articles for school publications, and that she once wrote a radio play about typists in 1979. When the producers said they had trouble finding an audience, Lorraine knew exactly who to call. But they sent me out relieving a lot. Another time I went relieving at school pubs, which were school publications, Mm -hmm. That was how I was discovered with my writing, we because uh, I did a lot of writing, and um, they put it in in the department newsletter that I'd sold um, a six part radio play. Tell me about that. Oh, it was called Typers in Charge, and it was all about government typing office, and it was on at night, half an hour situation comedy. Anyway, they saw that I'd done that. Oh, you mean it was a series? Yes. And they saw I'd done that in the newsletter, and one of the edit- the current editor of school publications came charging into the typing room. I was a, I was in charge by this time, just a little in charge, because we're quite a few in charges. And he threw open the door, the editor, and he said, "Where's Lorraine Williams?" <laughs> and I said, "Here, here, here." And he um he said, and he waved the newsletter, and he said, "I want you to write for us." Oh, yeah. He said, "You do it tonight," and he walked out again. <laughs> and, <laughs> And, and, yeah, so I wrote a play and a short story. He rejected the short story, but he took the play. What and from, was the play called? 
Elephant in my ga- Elephant in the Garden. And it was for five, it was basic. It was for five year olds. It was all about they had this elephant in the garden, and all about you know what would they do with it. And in the end, they rode it. Mum rode it down to the shops and everything. But um, and from then, and then I wrote about sixty more things for them. I was still writing later on. Yeah, they'll be in the archives because I sent I sent a story to radio a couple of years ago, and I said, oh, I've been writing for a lot. I haven't written for a year for a hundred years for you. And and when they announced on the radio, here's a new story by so and so who's been writing for us for a long, long time. <laughs> when was that? What was the story? The last one. Yes. Oh, I think it was called Boxing Day Surprise. I'm not too sure. And when was that? A couple of years ago. Really? Oh, and when I wrote Typers in Charge and Radio New Zealand bought it, they they did it live in Auckland, and I went up, and they said we haven't, we can't get hold of anybody to come to the audience. And I said, give me ten minutes. I rang up every typist office in the whole of Auckland and the government, and they came in their droves for three days. They brought their lunch. <laughs> when was that? <laughs> that? That was oh, I can't remember when it was. Long, roughly, long time roughly, ago, seventy-eight something like okay. that. I don't know. It was called Typist in Charge, anyway. oh, <laughs> and it didn't got very, didn't get very good reviews. But all the typists enjoyed it because they understood what was happening. The rain's confidence grew, and she started to apply for senior typist roles. But she always had her sights set on being a supervising typist at the Ministry of Education. But you see, what happened with me when I was a junior? I was talking, my, my supervising typist, who was the top dog, that was her title in those days, supervising typist, and then Mrs Rowley, who was the typist in charge, they were talking, and I said I wanted to be like the supervising typist one day, and I meant travel the world like her, and Mrs Rowley turned to her and said, oh, oh, they want to be like, she wants your job, ha, 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 she wants your job, and I vowed then and there I would get her job, and it took me 35 years, <laughs> no, 30 years, and I got it. Wonderful. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. And was it worth it when you got it? Well, see, at the time, I was at the... Oh, this is where... I was at the health department. I was the typist in charge at health department. I was one degree below the one I wanted in education. Mm-hmm. One Just one lousy little step. I was almost there. And then they changed all those rules like I was just telling you, and suddenly they made, made my job at, at health the same, exactly the same level as the one at education. So I could stay in a beautiful job that I absolutely loved, but I'd always hankered for this one at education. So I put in for that one and I got it. Lorraine had a remarkable career in the public service and like many of her colleagues was affected greatly by the restructuring and rationalising of the public service in the 80s and 90s. Here Lorraine explains what happened to her during this difficult period. And then the restructuring came and they chucked me into a secretary's job. Now tell me about that, because that was... That, that broke was, my heart. Restructuring was what year? Uh, 88, 87, 88, 87, 88, 87 88. something like that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, it was and, traumatic, wasn't it? Well, yeah. well, I did everything that they told me. Yes. I, I I ran courses for the girls. I came up with ideas to help them. I, I What I did was... we. The girls who weren't on word processors, I organised it so that the, that they would have lessons from the girls who were on word processors, and I'd give them a little certificate saying that they'd learnt it. And the girls who'd t- done the teaching, I gave them little certificates to say that they'd taught. Really? You know, I did all sorts of things. I, I got films in to, so they could watch. I I did everything that I was told to do or that I came up with, all the ideas. To prove their worth. Yeah, to help everybody during the restructuring process, yeah. but nobody... And the only job I could put in for, of course, was secretary. There was nothing else because they got rid of middle management. And I, by this time, I was I was a manager typing services. That was my title, but I hadn't ever used it because the men got upset by me using it. 
one man went to the boss and complained why she put manager typing services on the bottom of this job. And, and I had, had, had to be pointed out to him that my title was manager typing services. He was in charge of three, I was in charge of 33. <laughs> the absolute worst thing that broke my heart, and I didn't realise this for 10 years afterwards, was that um, nobody told me, nobody ever thought to tell me that I could have jumped grades. I could have, I'd been doing nothing but staff training for 15 years, and I could have gone into staff training. But me being a stupid little typist who'd been trained to be a typist all my life, never thought twice that I could go out of the typist grade. And nobody took nobody the nobody to told me that. We went on courses, what to do and how to get through it, and and nobody so much as said you can go, you can change grades, you know, or classes. I mean, so I was a secretary in a job I I couldn't do. I was hopeless. I wasn't a secretary. I couldn't make cups of tea and and be nice and and and, no. and answer phones and no. it was hopeless and I almost had a nervous breakdown through it. Really? Um, so in the end, they decided. Oh, I don't know. They talked to me, and I called the union in, mm-hmm. and uh, the girl I was secretary for said had told the union that well, if Lorraine um, doesn't resign from the government, we will. Um, Make it public how bad, how, well, not how bad she is, but we'll make, we'll tell the whole world what's happened. Yeah, but it didn't matter. I said I'll write this hilarious article all about how it went, and they didn't want that. So, oh, so in the end, they they gave me my um my salary for two years at the high level. Yeah. And so what I did was I took a staff typist job mm-hmm. in education in a little outlying office yeah. for two years and licked my wounds on the same salary that I'd had as I'd been in charge. And then at the end of that two years, when I felt I'd licked my wounds enough, I put in for a typist in charge job at Survey and Land Information. Mm-hmm. Same salary. Yeah. <laughs> and I negotiated that my superannuation would stay the same. Yeah. And um, I loved it. Absolutely adored it. Thank I was in charge of four girls, same salary, lovely people. Oh, Absolutely goodness, adored it. For that. Yeah. What a horrible experience, though. Yeah. Horrible. But of course, that was just the beginning. That happens all the time to people nowadays. We're glad to say that Lorraine thoroughly enjoys her retirement, having now travelled the world and as a 24 year veteran with her senior class at the gym. Not forgetting the fact she is still today a polar bear, someone who swims all year round, no matter the weather. Progressing out of the typing pool into support and personal assistant roles, Minna moved through different government departments, juggling starting a family at a time when maternity leave was not available with her first child, to returning from maternity leave after her second child, only to find herself back in the typing pool. This situation forced Minna to take action to be reinstated to her preferred role as PA. Um, I went back to the department and I didn't get my job working for the chief judge, which I expected because you can't leave a job. I had a whole year off. Um, I had to go back to the typing pool. I hated it. Different girls and whatever, they were all younger than me. Um, But then I found out that the person who was in looking after the chief judge was a temp and pregnant. And I thought, well, this is off. So um, it was Christmas, just before Christmas, because I had both my children were born at the end of Christmas. When I went back to work the new year, I thought, oh, bugger them, I'm just going back up. I went back to the desk and I sat there and I said, you've got any problems, CPSA. But then um, fate stepped in because the girl woman had her baby early. It was meant to be. During the 1980s, while working at DSIR, Minna answered a call from an iwi in the far north to go and talk about scholarship administration. This led to another new role. 
Actually, it led to another job that I ended up going to, Māori Education Trust, and I was the um, office manager there. So the Māori Education Trust, um, I, when I first came to Wellington, I got a Department of Education scholarship. Education put all these scholarships to the Māori Education Trust. So it was, I worked there for two years, so it was a great opportunity to, for me to pay back. Minna picks up the timeline after moving into special education in a regional role. In that five years, um, I came into head office and um, was the team leader admin. And um, so it was good to be back. I missed the buzz of the city. Being out in the birds is very quiet. Um, so I applied for a job at the um, Ministry of Agriculture and Forestry, looking after the DDG of policy. And I was there, looked after him. For one year, he went off to become the CE for environment. I stayed on here for three more years because by then my mother was old and died and I was the executor of her will. It took me three years to sort it out. Once it was sorted out, um, I went over to environment, the person that I looked after over here, and um, looked after Paul Reynolds for four years until he retired. That's one of the things that's kept me in my work because you're doing the same old, same old, but the content is different and the people are different. It's always very interesting. And I've got this mind where I like to learn. Minna retired from her last role as Executive Assistant to the Director of Communications at the Ministry for Primary Industries in 2020, concluding a 45-year career with the public service. Valerie had worked at State Insurance, the DSIR, in the Ministry of Defence before she started at the Inland Revenue Department in a typist role. During her 14 years there, she saw the disestablishment of the typing pools, a shift into administration, and was one of the many typists who found themselves suffering from RSI, or repetitive strain injury. So you started at um, Inland Revenue what year? I started there in 1987. As I left the army, yep, and I worked there until two thousand and one, so I was there a long time. You were there yes, a long time. yes, and for a start, it was more just the ordinary type and pull work. Yep. But um, then, as I say, they spread us out, and they did a lot of, um, see, you know, uh, letters where the um, clerical people only had to fill in gaps. You know, they would have it on their own computers and they would just put in, you know, Mr. Brown and all this. So our work went down and down and down, yes. So, of course, they were asking us, did we want to work in another area? The changes were happening. People were starting to do their own letters too and using the typing pool a bit less. So our numbers gradually went down and down. And then they got this idea that each typist would be given several people and they were typed for them and them alone. And it became a bit muddly, I felt, in the end. Some of us were in the typing pool and some of us weren't. There was still a small typing pool, and I suppose Joe Bloggs took his typing there. But quite a lot of the managers seemed to have a set person that did their work. I seemed to sort of float around, I think, but I was starting to have quite a lot of problem with RSI in the wrists, which had been bothering me for a while. And so when I spoke to them about it, they got me to go and do in about an hour a day in the administration area. 
and doing work there and I really quite enjoyed that and I seemed to do quite well. Returning to New Zealand from London after her OE, Lee returned to work at the Department of Social Welfare, finding that the structure had changed completely. All staff now had their own PCs and the typing pools were essentially defunct, with administration support staff grouped into satellite offices and another restructure on the horizon. Um, so that was good. Yeah, life in London was good in, in those years. It was, um, yeah, it was fun. It was really good fun. Lots of friends come over to visit. Um, so that would have been hmm, 80, early 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, we um, had to come home, so um, wasn't really, so we had to leave the UK. Um, the working visas expired. And then, uh, uh, what am I going to do? I'll just have to, you know, go back home or maybe go to Australia. That might oh, be a bit more exciting. Yeah, the sort of the prospect of coming to, back to Christchurch was just after you've sort of had this really, mm. you know, fun, buzzy kind of. Swinging London. Yeah, was quite... yeah, yeah. It, it was it was okay. So um, she came back, um, rang up the social welfare department to see, mm-hmm. you know, if there were any jobs going there, or or had met somebody and said. Yeah, look, I'm sure there was, you know, come in, come in, sort of thing. And um, so, yeah, sure enough. <laughs> um, so that, but the department had changed quite a lot, um, had broken out into satellite offices. Oh, what did I do? I went into, because um, I don't think there was, the typing pool wasn't there, um, I don't think. Um, I don't think cause everybody had typing pools. Everybody had, had their own PC. Had their own PC and, yeah. and you wrote, you know, you did your own PC letters, mm. sort of thing. Um, but I had, so I had a clerical role um, in the, um, the Southern Accounting Centre, that's okay. what it was, and that was based out of Papanui. There was a restructure. We did. Mm-hmm. There was a restructuring as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that of the whole of Wins or <clears> the whole section. Um, I think of the whole, the whole. of Wins. Okay. Yeah. Rosemary had worked for the General Post Office since 1976, progressing to a supervising typist role. Taking a short OE to Australia in the mid 80s, she was able to return to her supervising job just before a major restructure in 1987 saw the post office split into three separate entities. And then I applied for a a year's leave without pay and my boyfriend at the time, and I went to Sydney for a year to live. And then I came back to my job as supervisor in the post office. And then in 1987, the post office was split into the three corporations. Yes. Um, and because the chief postmaster's office worked across those whole three corporations, yes. so staff got to choose which corporation they would like to go to. So I chose to go to Post, uh-huh. and I ended up at Telecom. <laughs> so so much for choice. But so before, before 1987, after the change of yeah. to what extent did did you know these things were going to happen? How well prepared was the old post office with all its complex arrangements for that for that sort of change? I think they were somewhat prepared because post was a separate New Zealand or yes. well, the post office savings bank was separate. The telecom part was separate. Yes. yes. So they were quite separate, so it was easy to yes. split them off. But it was the groups like the Chief Postmaster's Office, I think, that were yes. um, who who went across the whole three. They had to be cannibalised. Yes. And there we also had a lot of assets that mm. went across the whole three. Yes. So we had to have a yes. 
um, a fixed asset register team, yes. aka the FART, yes. which, <laughs> which had to go around um, looking at all the assets to yes. see which corporation they were going they were to. Going it was to. a huge job. Oh, enormous. Enormous job. Yes. And it, I remember it happened, re- it just was so quick. It just happened really quickly. So I think on the last day of the post office, that yeah. just happened with no fanfare. There was no, yeah. no, the old, old institution just yeah, just ceased to exist. Oh. Sadie started at the general post office in 1957 and progressed through senior shorthand typist roles to become a manager of typing services for the accounting and engineering typing pools. In this clip, Sadie starts off talking about the training and professional development that she had, which helped when she implemented a management structure of her own to manage a very large typing pool. Sadie then goes on to tell us about leaving the post office and what happened next. But the thing the post office did do was send you through the supervising courses. You know, you uh, you got assistance with going on courses, learning how to deal with people, that kind of thing. So all the way through with the post office, you had support for professional development? Oh, absolutely. So your night school, did they help with the fees for that? No, they didn't, actually. That was your choice? Yeah, it was my choice. But But other courses? Yes, I ended up up running supervision courses myself. They picked me out and they trained me to be a trainer. And I ended up running public speaking courses for them. And that was really fabulous. Yes, I enjoyed all that. In Finance and Accounts Division, I only had a couple of shorthand typists. The rest were typists. There was a lot of, uh, as you can imagine, financial work to do and a lot of copy typing, illegal illegal forms and things like that, yes. Uh, Certainly was. Down the other end of the office, there was a big data entry room and they had huge, huge machines that they used to sort of enter data on. Yeah, I came back to the engineering team. So you'd left the accounting and you were there Finance what? accounts, I was there for eight years. Eight years, and then you're now into the... Back into the engineering chief's office. And How many people in that? 46. That was a very big time. Yeah, but that was, that was a place that had the satellite places, so there were people um, placed in different areas around Wellington. So, so what I did, because it was a bit of a, a mess, actually, so what I did is I uh, made people... Um, you know, I had about, I think, three senior typists, they shorthand typists. And so in each of the satellite areas, I put somebody in charge. And so I had a meeting every week and say, tell me problems. Mm. And so I'd get everybody to sort them. And in the end, it was really great. I was so proud of that great running place. Yeah. Yeah. So you set up a management structure, yes. in effect, for the typing pool. Yes, and so I made those seniors, yep. I empowered those seniors, they're in control. And mm-hmm. they, you know, not me, I'm not going to solve the problems, you solve the problems. Yeah. And they actually loved it. They really loved it. Mm. Yeah. I can believe that. And I got such respect from them. It was amazing. So what year did you leave the post office? It was 1988. I decided to do left brain stuff and I went to uh, in high school and um, took on a course short story writing, mm-hmm. which I ended up running it. Mm-hmm. So I did that for a year. That was really fabulous. I had a couple of things published. Yeah. 
helpful. But um, it's really hard work to get money for it and get a salary going. So I... Um, and in that time, that was about three years, there had been big changes like uh, Word Perfect had come in. I had no idea what that was. You know, Wang had gone out, really. Yep. And then it was Word Perfect. So I went to... Uh, I got private tuition on that, on Word Perfect. So I came back, and that's when I joined the fire service, and that's when I became board secretariat. Things like that. And then... Um, uh, we went through a whole lot of um, harrowing issues there with the chairman and the union. It was a horrible time. Uh, but he resigned and then Dame Margaret Basley came in and took over and I was with her for 12 years and that was extremely interesting because she had fingers in so many pies, doing so many reviews and I met a lot of fabulous people through her and yep. once again broadened my knowledge of what goes on in the uh, business world. So then you finished, Margaret, Dame Margaret retired? Yes, yeah, she retired and I still stayed at the fire service, but because um, rarely she had retired, um, my job to her as, I, I call her a private, private secretary, I was then. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I uh, left, took redundancy from there and um, got a job here. At the time of her interview in 2019, Sadie was still working full-time for an organisation supplying management services to DHBs and other health organisations. Sarah's long career with the Department of Social Welfare has meant a lot of movement, both in different locations and around various support roles. In this clip, she tells Judith about the pathways that exist within the department and her role today as an executive assistant. Um, so what's your position for here? I'm an executive assistant to the regional director. Okay. So, and we've got three regional directors here. So um, we've got three EAs as well. We're called EAs. So we've got three of them. Um, yeah, we just pretty much... And again, so what's the range of your work for, him, for you? Is it a hero? Oh, uh, they're all women at yeah, the moment. Women. Yeah, we're okay. going to get our, our males coming soon. The range of our work is crazy. It's not, And it's not about your typing. I mean, we type reports, we answer emails, we take phone calls, we deal with complaints, we manage our RDs, emails, we will put some stuff in their calendars, we do bookings, we do all sorts of stuff. But we're mainly there in between for their managers. Mm. Yeah, so we've got... In Auckland, we've got, what, 33 officers and all of those managers, if they get stuck, two of us deal with the front line. And I've never had any, like, for me, because a lot of the people in here have come from case manager. Like, if you're front line interested, it's case manager, service centre trainer, this trainer, that service centre, you know, all of that. And I hadn't really done those ranks. I had in the typing area, typing pool, gone up the ranks. But in front line, I was, because I'd been in regional office, was able to go into management quite early didn't really enjoy that so that's I backed off on that one but I'm looking at it again. After leaving the Air Force in the early 70s Maureen took a two-year OA to London where she utilised her typing skills working for a UK government department that had been set up to compensate folks who had had their houses confiscated during World War II. Upon her return to New Zealand, Maureen took a role with child welfare for a short time as the nature of the work was upsetting, so she moved to the probation service as manager of typing. However, it wasn't long before her boss promoted Maureen into a trainer role, which she eventually did for the next 26 years, training staff across the whole service and throughout the country. 
but I had started, or the boss had started me on training properly then, and it got to that I was training right across the country. Yeah. Um, so you spent 28 years there. So how long were you in that managing the admin services role before you started training? Pretty well straight away? Or? Yeah. And the boss had sent me on to do those teaching diplomas as well. And then I had to train the manager typing services to take over after me because I was spending too much time away from home. Yeah, so virtually I did that until, crikey, I did another trip across to London for another two years. And I went over and then realised that I could become a British citizen dual passported through my grandmother. So I actually spent eight and a half years over there. I did a lot of travel in those couple of periods that I had over in London actually managed to get to 95 countries, and I still haven't reached 100 yet. (laughs) And then I must be just about up to the time of retiring. I did have an interesting working life. Robin started her public service career with the Ministry of Energy in the early 1980s, and in the 90s moved into personal assistant roles with the Canterbury DHB, eventually progressing into a PA role to the general manager of Naitahu, a role that she enjoyed. However, in the early 2000s, Robin decided to take tentative steps into setting up her own secretarial business. In this clip, Robin tells Eth about how she managed the transition to self-employment. And then... And then... What happened? (laughs) And then I kind of, my average time in an organisation was about four years. Mm-hmm. After four years, I'd start to get itchy feet and think, you know, I've been there, done that, I'm looking for a new challenge. And I started to think that um, sort of about into my fourth year at Naitahu. Loved the people, loved the job, growing organisation. Um, and I kind of thought about my role as a as a PA and my my secretarial life and I loved the role but I, I kept thinking if I move out of this organization and I go and be a PA for somebody else I'm just going to be doing the same work again in a different organization I'm looking for a new challenge and so I thought I could take my skills and set up my own business it was a really really scary thought yeah but I did a lot of personal development that year um, supported by Naitahu, even if that meant that they knew they were going to lose me. Um, I And I was also studying for a diploma in management at that time. Um, I, I bit the bullet and um, decided that that's what I was going to do come the year 2000. So I talked to my manager about it she was really supportive because she was going to be leaving at the end of that year so she had no vested interest in in me staying Um, and we worked out a deal where I would work for her for four days a week and then on the fifth day I'd have off and that was the day I would use to try and um, get some clients for my secretarial business I did not have the confidence and it would be too risky for me to just leave a job a well-paying job without any clients or some kind of regular income coming in. 
Sandra had a couple of years' work experience outside of government before she started her medical typist career as part of the board administration team at Gisborne Hospital in a junior typist role, eventually progressing to a secretarial PA role. After six years at the hospital, she took a management support role for the conservator of the Department of Conservation in Gisborne in 1991. In 2009, after a restructure, Sandra began working in the communications team for DOC, which sparked her interest in writing. In this clip, Sandra tells Eth about how she is planning for her future with her sights set on her own business. Um, but then there comes a time when you have to kind of look ahead and think, well, do I still want to be doing this in another 10 years' time? Right. And in the comms and media space, it's quite tight in Gisborne too. You know, a lot of people tend to stay in roles a long time. Um, and it's quite a competitive field. And I do think they do prefer the younger ones. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I accept that. Um, and if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. So you can't change that. But um, that is quite disappointing when you do go for jobs and you feel that, yeah, that um, you are judged by your age yet you bring a whole wealth of experience. Yeah, so I decided actually about three years ago that I wanted to do something different, and I know other people that do, you know, like freelance writing and that type of thing, and I thought, oh, well, maybe I should do something like that, but I quite like the heritage research stuff because I've done a little bit of that at DOP with some interpretation projects that we've done, so I thought, oh, that might be quite a good area to do, you know, because there didn't seem to be many people, well, I don't think there's anyone in Gisborne actually doing it. I think there are people outside of Gisborne, but I don't know of anyone else here doing that. So it's a, like a little bit of a niche. So I started just doing a little bit of that. So I started just doing a few contracts um, and started the business, and I managed to negotiate with Dot that I could just work four days. Um, and then, like, on the Friday, I'd spend on my business and sometimes on the weekends as well. And at the same time, I decided, oh, yes, I, I better get a degree, a comms degree while I'm at it, just to tidy up that little package, just, you know, just so people actually take you seriously. Um, so there's been a, f you know, a few little contracts, but it has been quite difficult with working yeah. because you have to actually network a lot more, and, and that's something I find when I network, I get the contracts. If I don't network, I don't get anything because yeah. it's the sort of work that people don't necessarily go looking for. It's not like um, you go to the, you know, the cafe to get a cup of coffee or, you, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's not necessarily the type of work that everyone's going to be looking for, so you do have to be quite targeted. So, um, yeah, that's why recently I decided I think I'm probably better to focus more on the business and my study at the same time, and, and you know, that's where I'm sort of looking to head. So what degree are you doing and how are you doing that? So I'm doing a, a Bachelor of Applied Science, <coughs> I think it's called, in, commu in Communications, a major. They had a title name. I don't know why they changed the titles, but they do. Yeah. Um, with the Open Polytechnic, so it's distance learning, yep. um, which can be trying at times as well. It's very lonely, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hard to find someone to bounce your thinking off or to talk about the, yeah. the topic with. We leave the last words about life in the typing pools to Mary Dooley, who witnessed all the changes to the public service over her 43-year career. They were being phased out in the 1990s, early 1990s. The word was 
Oh, well, long before that, was the word was you'll never need shorthand anymore. Uh, but we found that the um, the senior people did prefer to have a shorthand typist to do their work rather than a dictaphone. A lot of the new up-and-coming people probably use dictaphones since then, I'm not sure. But they also gave computers to most of the clerical divisions and they thought that they would be doing their own typing. But we found that if it was going to be, uh, you know, ministerial replies or things like that, they had to have more of a professional touch. Now we spotlight the only surviving typing pool still in existence today, that of the medical typists and transcriptionists working in small groups across rotating shifts for district health boards up and down the country. Transcribing clinical and surgical patient notes is a specialist field, which requires being able to learn, retain and recall complex medical terminology for healthcare practitioners who use digital voice recognition, which typists then transcribe for clarity and accuracy. The next set of clips are women who have worked, or still work, as medical typists. In 1964, Jane secured her first medical typist role in the Waikato Hospital typing pool for the orthopaedic department and obstetrics and gynaecology. Although she only stayed a year in this position, this early experience helped Jan to get her next medical typist role with Rotorua Hospital in 1979. So you spent a year there. What made you think you'd like to move? Um, I suddenly decided I, li- I liked the idea. I had a, my eldest sister-in-law's mother was associated with Waikato Hospital, and um, she was in one of the ran helped run one of the nurses' homes, and she must have mentioned that there was a job going in the typing pool at Waikato Hospital, and, okay. and the pay was about three pounds more and. So, oh, rather than earning eight pounds and triplets an hour, paying six months tax, this was what year? 1963 when I started work. So this was 1964. So yes, I worked there for about a year in that typing pool. It was it was interesting because I was associated with orthopaedics and um, ONG and um, obstetrics and gynae and for clinics we would set off for the um, clinics with our typewriter on a trolley and orderly would come across and get the typewriter and, on the trolley and, they, and we would have got ordered the, um, the relevant files. I think we did, actually. I can't remember whether we did or not, but however. Yes, yeah, so we'd be there and the, and the um, consultant would, uh, for seeing a patient would come in and dictate and you'd either type it then and there or take it down in shorthand. Yes. What sort of routine in that particular oh, in the, pool oh, was in it? Typing pool. Yeah. Um, well, it all depended on it depended on what time the clinics were, and of course we we typed. Can't remember whether we typed admissions as well, but I don't think we did. I think we just did clinics, and the letters going out to the GPs uh, from the clinics and and discharge letters of patients from, from wards. There was no pre- there didn't seem to be the pressure of getting things done by a certain time or yes. It was nineteen seventy nine when I went to work at Rotary Hospital in the Typing Pool there. Right. So, so a significant gap. Yes. What were the what changes? 
no shorthand. It was all booked phone. Yes. yes. So that's a significant yes. change. Yes. And we were doing admissions ops and ward rounds, discharge le- and discharge letters. So that's what we were doing. At that point, you became a medical typist. Yes. Yes. I was there from 1979 until about 84, I think, and then I shifted over to the new psych unit that had I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. So I was the only type of the typist in, in the psych unit. So you're a single yes. typist yes. then. Yes, that's right. And and again, like the the Waikato Hospital one, it was can't hear what he's saying. Another doctors with beards and they'd crackle away in the in the dictaphone, and other ones would have the sound way up and you know. Cherie started in the typing pool at Gisborne Hospital in nineteen seventy six with manual typewriters and carbon copies. Over the last 45 years, she has seen many advancements in technology, worked in many different parts of the hospital, and in the latter part of her career has had to juggle large volumes of work, often under time pressure, with the necessity to ensure accuracy. So you would have been 17, going on 18 when you finished school? Yes, my first job was with McCulloch, Butler and Spence, which was... Quite a big accounting firm here in Gisborne at the time. And I started off as the group junior. I did a wee bit of typing, but not too much. And then I went to the accounting bookkeeping machines. I was there three years. Then I came to Gisborne Hospital when I was 20 in 1976. And it'll be 45 years in February. And when I first started, I did the mail, for example, and I typed the theatre list out um, and it was all carbon copies. Yes. There was no photocopier. The ne- nearest thing to a photocopier was something called a gestetner. And, of course, we weren't allowed to use that. That was just for the uh, chief executive's um, office and their staff. So there were just four or five of you in that typing pool. Yes. Did you have a head typist? No, not really, no. No. I was in this situation for... For about 12 months. Yep. And then a geriatrician started at the hospital and he had his own department. And I went there to be his secretary. And right. he held clinics over there and it was a ward as well. And they also did a um, help. I also helped with a research project. Yes, I was out on my own there for a while, for about three years. How did work come in? Well, the notes, the case notes, patients' files. And the tape used to come in, be delivered so to us. Yeah. The theatre list would be hand-delivered, and then you'd ring the orderly to deliver the theatre list. Uh, the doctors would come in and sign their letters or discharge summaries, whatever it was. So if we got um, through our work, we'd go off to the records department and help them with their filing, or we'd go, go down to the switchboard and answer a few calls. That's and you had the old yeah, pull out. Push it and plug thingy. I learned those as well. The new hospital is in Gisborne Hospital. We moved down to where we are now in about 85. Other departments moved earlier, but it was a, a gradual process. No, it was, it was great when we came down here, lovely new hospital. The hospital has kind of been my life in a way. I'm not only am I an employee... I'm also a long-term patient, mm-hmm. and I've got to know the staff very well over the years. Yes, they have come and gone, and it's the people that 
I think, matter the most. They make it durable. They make it um, a good place to work, so you want to come to work. Deborah spent 20 years with Inland Revenue, starting out in a typing pool, but then moved on to other roles, such as team leader supervisor, cashier, mail lady, telephones, and as a PA in the call centre. She was even in charge of responding to bomb threats. After having her daughter and a period of part-time work, she started her medical typist career at Waikato Hospital's radiology department in 2008. At the time of her interview in 2019, Deborah was still working as a medical typist, but now at Middlemore Hospital in Auckland. And in the, in, the, in the meantime, I had been applying for any jobs that were going, and I applied for three jobs at Waikato Hospital. Um, there was, I think it was cardiology, orthopaedics, and radiology, and I got a radiology position at, at Waikato Hospital in 2008. And there was a uniform there. You had to wear like a, you had to wear like a nurse's uniform. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, like the smocks, blue smocks. Oh, yes. Yeah. And what was the work environment there? Like, it was a pool of like four ladies, mm-hmm. and there was like a mini barrier wall like that. So you yeah, had two on this side and two on the other side. And it was very different because you typed the work, it was typed up, you printed it off. So what, reports from the radiologist well, just, yep, come, yep, would come yep, to you? Yep. And you and did you have to learn much technical language? I, I did, yes. And that's what I did is my own, I made up my own words, uh, Excel spreadsheet with all my words. So I've got all my alphabetical words, A's. I've got like another one that's got all my um, drug names, all my stent names. Does anybody else use it? I've, I've given it to a couple of other people and they've said that's, that's, that's absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. It is. Yeah, and I still use it now to this day. So I was only at Waikato from I think it was like May till um, oh, okay. December 2008. Okay. And there was over like... 4,000 jobs in the queue. <laughs> really? And I had to start at 4 o'clock on a Monday and a Tuesday night because I had to wait for somebody to leave to get there to use their PC. Jill's long career in public service started as a shorthand typist in the Department of Internal Affairs in 1968, soon promoted to senior shorthand typist two years later. Marrying in 1970, she moved to Hamilton, working for Department of Labour and then Lands and Survey as Deputy Head Typist, before moving once again to Gisborne, where Jill worked for the State Advances, part of the Housing Corp. Leaving from there to start a family, she returned to part-time work in a variety of jobs in both private and government departments, lived overseas with her second husband, and eventually found her way to her current role at Gisborne Hospital. So what is your title here at the hospital now? Clinical secretary. Yeah, and mm. you largely type notes or you... Dictaphone, it's all yeah. dictaphone, admins, rosters. Um, oh, we have to do, for cancer patients, these special PET scan things that have to be organised and they're urgent. When that comes up, you've got to do that straight away. And that's quite an involved process, organising the transport to get them to Waikato, organising the um, scans to be uploaded to be accessed by other hospitals. And, and then they have um, MDMs, multidisciplinary meetings to do with cancer patients. And that's a, a referral to Waikato, which has to also be done. 
So you type a lot of specialists' notes, and mm. and is that done through something like Winscribe? So is it done through a central system, or are they still use it? They still use dictaphones. Yeah, I do have been doing mostly surgical orthopedics and general surgery. The girls next door to us do all the medical, all the physicians, and if we've got time, we help them. And now I've just taken on gynaecology, and we're changing the way we work things a wee bit so that everybody's up to the same stage, which is annoying because I work faster than some of the others. (laughs) So, yes, I'm back up for the ENT girl and for orthopaedics and general surgery and for medsec, but my first priority at the moment is gynaecology, which is a whole new field for me. Starting her career in local government in 1977, Sally C gained valuable skills in the 80s with all the latest technologies during a stint working in Australia. Back in New Zealand, she began working for Wanganui DHB in the early 90s in data entry, PA and HR roles before finding her way to the inpatient scheduling typing pool. And I went into the um, typing pool, okay. inpatient scheduling at the hospital. Was that big? Or? Yeah, yeah, big team over there. Still is, really. There was probably about five or six typists with me. And then they had um, probably about the same number of schedulers as well. And so we were in two offices. There were some offices on one side and some on the other of this big corridor. And um, so basically I sort of, I was just in there doing typing. And then the other thing that we had to do, so it was basically um, dictaphone typing with tapes. And I had one surgeon that I had to do typing for. God, it was just impossible. Possible. He's a terrible mumbler. And I used to think, after a while, I'd just have to sort of close my eyes and just sort of weed my way through it because being a surgeon, he would do um, salpingo, oophorectomies and things like that. I know, all those sort of... So how did you learn to spell um, the words? Our computers were set up to English New Zealand and then when they had a custom dictionary, it was called Custom CPA and we still use it. So any words that were misspelled would have red underline and we knew so we could either right mouse click it and it would be automatically corrected or if we were completely off, we'd have to ask the other typist what they thought the word was. And then so often we'd be running around with the tapes to another typist's tape machine, inserting the tape and say, what do you reckon this is? You know, and it would be like, oh, yeah, that's whatever it is, you know, diverticulitis or diverticulosis or, you know, all that sort of thing, you know. And I used to think, how do they know all this stuff, you know? So it was basically trial by fire, really. This is the wrap-up of our Life in the Typing Pool episodes, and there were so many more rich stories amongst the keystroke interviewees that we could have easily had another three. I'd like to thank our three featured interviewees, Mary Dooley, Lorraine and Minna, 
who represent a good proportion of what it was like to spend an entire career within government. And I think a great deal of thanks is warranted to these three women for their combined 120 years of service to the public of Aotearoa New Zealand. Coming up in episode 6, The Impact of Technology, we look at how typewriters evolved, what the introduction of computers, from data entry to word processors, meant for typists, and how the advent of technologies like photocopiers and dictaphones pushed out carbon copies and the use of shorthand. The Keystrokes Per Minute project was made possible by funding support from the Ministry of Culture and Heritage and the Public Services Commission. Listeners can find out more about the project by visiting website www.storycollective.nz. The soundtrack was kindly provided by permission from the Boston Typewriter Orchestra. Find their music and merchandise on bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening. The soundtrack was kindly provided by permission from the Boston 